0: Well, today, as I've already mentioned, we're continuing on in our study of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation with what I think is the crowning jewel of our faith, and that is the doctrine of grace. The good news of the Gospel is so good, so rich, so sweet because of God's grace for us. It's the primary doctrine that so many of our forebearers suffered For us to have restored to us something that had been lost through time. That we are not justified by our own merit. In other words, we are not justified by the goods that we can do in this world. We are justified by the pure, free, loving gift of grace of our Lord. And that's very good news for us. But as Carl Truman points out in his book on this topic, the language of grace so permeates the Bible, it is so all over the place, and it's across all traditions of Christian theology, that to claim that salvation is by grace alone is in itself to claim very little at all. In other words, everybody says that we're saved by grace and by grace alone. But what we actually mean by those words have varied wildly throughout church history, so we 've had people such as uh, Augustine and Pelagius say that we 're saved by grace alone and actually mean the total opposite thing, or we 've had people like Thomas Aquinas or Gabriel Beale or martin luther and, and and Erasmus or William Perkins and James Arminius so these are all men who are faithful to the scriptures as they understood it and said we're saved by grace alone, and meant diametrically opposite things. So, the question for us this morning, as Christians, who trust that by the Scriptures alone, by the gift of faith alone, that we are saved, we need to understand, what is grace really? Now, as a quick recap, the other two pillars of our Reformation faith that we've discussed so far Um, that our own church stems from, that we are a product of these beliefs, in other words, are Scripture alone and faith alone. Now first, we claim to be sola scriptura. That's the Latin word. Sola scriptura Christians. Scripture alone Christians. Meaning that we adhere to the Bible over tradition uh, as our rule of faith. Even the good traditions. There are a lot of good traditions. We're about to celebrate in these coming, you know, about month, month and a half, we're going to celebrate a good tradition. Christmas. That's a tradition. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul tell us to hang up our stockings and put up the tree because Santa Claus is coming tonight. Nowhere do we get that in the New Testament. That is a good Christian tradition. But the Bible is the ultimate authority even over good traditions. It's the corrector, the norming norm of what we believe and how we live. And so the Bible's purpose rather, is to reveal God to us, how we might be saved through Christ. It makes us wise unto salvation, as Paul says, and it helps us to work out the salvation that we've been given through Christ. That's the point of Scripture. That's the first topic. The second topic we touched on was sola fide. Faith alone. We are faith alone Christians. Meaning that we believe that it is by faith in a faithful Christ that we are justified. It's not of ourselves. not of our works. It's by having faith in Him and His good merit, His good works, that we are justified. In other words, it doesn't matter how many nice, benevolent things we do in this world. It doesn't matter how accurate our religious beliefs are or how good we are at adhering to them. We are not saved through those things. We are saved through Jesus alone. Trusting in Him alone. Now, that we did talk about this last week. Faith in Christ does mean that we do, upon being justified, begin to live a sanctified life. That does not mean that when we are saved by faith alone, that we can live however we want. That's not what that means. If we are saved by faith alone, then it translates into a sanctified life of good works. And one day, despite all of our mess, all of our imperfections, all our peculiarities, one day we will be fully resurrected and glorified with Jesus Christ. But again... Faith is the gateway to this whole process of salvation. Nothing we do, but what he's done, and we trust in it. Now, thirdly, and today, we are going to make the claim that we are sola gratia Christians, meaning that we are grace alone Christians. That means that our relationship to God is a hundred percent, not 99.999, but a hundred percent A gift from Him to us that has nothing to do with our worth or our worthlessness, with our merit or our demerit. It has a 100% to do with His gift to us. Now, grace is not merely God overlooking our quirks like some doting parent. That's not what grace is. Neither is grace earned and secured by our good behavior. If we're nice little boys and girls instead of naughty ones. Grace is God's unilateral move towards humanity in goodness. And He moves towards us in goodness through Jesus Christ alone. Who is the focal point of our grace received and experienced and lived out. But, as simple as those things seem to be, as much as we believe them and hold them to be true, they have not always been the foregone conclusion in church history. The theology of grace throughout the church's history has fluctuated. It's been kind of a tumultuous understanding. Now, what we believe is not something that's relatively new. It's not something that's been invented in the last few hundred years like, say, the Book of Mormon or something like that. It's not a total new discovery. What it is, rather, is a rediscovery of something that's been there all along. Just like with our understanding of Scripture and faith, we have not always understood grace, but it's always been taught to us this way through Scripture. And the turning point for us getting back to what the apostles first taught was at the Protestant Reformation. So, I want to again, like we've been doing, I want to set the historical scene here. Now, by the 1500s, the idea of grace had been intertwined with some philosophical ideas that had been developing and unfolding in the medieval period. Now, a lot of these medieval theologians get a bad rap because as philosophers and theologians are wont to do, and their devotion to God and their seriousness about Scripture, they think a lot and come up with ideas. And sometimes their thinking and scholasticism goes beyond the bounds of Scripture. <laughs> I think a lot of that is done in a, in, a, in a sincerely pious desire to understand God more fully. However, the danger of that too can be. It's so easy to get lost in the weeds. You can come up with all these systems of, uh, philosophy and theology that sound good, but you find are getting further and further away from the main ideas of scripture. And so when things like, um, nominalism and, and, uh, uh and other Platonism and uh, these big philosophical ideas were being built out more, it's not important to our, to our, um, understanding this morning. We need to understand that's what the Reformers were reacting to. They were reacting to a um, a slowly evolving system of belief that started in the Scriptures and moved further and further away. So by Luther's day, a common understanding of grace in the Roman church because of these developing ideas was that God gives grace. It's God alone who gives grace to the individual but it's only if they did their best in moral and spiritual terms. So, if a person was really trying to live a good life, doing their best to be an ethical person, to be a religious person, well, then, then God would give them grace. And if they were doing their best and God gave them this grace, then they would be in a state of grace. So you could be a Christian that's out of a state of grace or you could be a Christian that's in a state of grace. And the difference is the work that you're putting in to be in grace. That's the idea. So, once you're in a state of grace, that's when you can do good works that God sees as good works. And so this effectively teaches three problematic, I would say unbiblical ideas about grace. First, it prizes the human will and action even above God's will. God's always giving out grace, but it isn't until we decide that to step our game up that grace becomes effective. It makes us the activators of grace. That's the problem, I would think. Secondly, it makes our understanding of receiving grace totally subjective. Now, there is no metric that they could employ in these days to say, you know, on a roller coaster you must be this tall to ride grace mountain (laughs) or something like that there wasn't an objective uh, scientific way to prove that you were in a state of grace so what it introduced into the lives of millions upon millions of people is uh, a real anxiety that they would have no assurance that they had received grace, or they had been good enough, or that they were living in a state of grace. There is no assurance about that. And probably the people <laughs> that did think they were in this, a state of grace, I would say, were probably a little self-deluded too. If you could think, oh yeah, I'm a really good person. I, I'm, I'm better than all these people. Thank God I'm not like these people. Does that sound like any characters in the Bible that Jesus said were not in a state of grace, the Pharisees? Yeah. So that's another problem. It offers no real assurance that God has given you grace. And third and finally, all of this is wrapped up in the intrinsic quality of the human individual. In other words, it's all about who you are and how good you're doing and God being the grace giver is way back there in the back of the van of theology. That's something that's just push way to the back justification becomes a matter of how deserving you are as a person and so with those three things if we pay attention to scriptures we see we have lost the thread of grace we have lost the trail we're often to some weird religious phariseeism that has very little to do with the goodness of god and that and the the crucial importance of Jesus Christ for sinners. That's way back removed to an ancillary place. But historically, although that's what the reformers were reacting to, this is not always what the church believed. Not even the Roman church. After all, they gave us Augustine of Hippo the most influential Christian theologian in the entire history of the church. Augustine, as you probably remember, is a North African bishop and theologian who came to faith not early in life, but later when he was, uh, when he was a grown man. After years living as a, a prideful academic, uh, living with his concubine, not being a moral person, being very proud of his intellectual acumen, he came to faith. And Augustine saw that his pride and his intellect and his lust in his personal life had revealed that even though he was respected greatly in his culture, that he had a nasty, dark state of heart. One that was totally bound by original sin. Something that he could not overcome with his mind or his social status or anything else. He could see that he had been enslaved to sin in ways that he couldn't even describe. And so in his autobiographic book, Confessions, in which he reveals to us this famous line, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He reveals to us that we are born into this world with a disordered love of sin. Not of our Savior, but of sin. That's what it means to be a sinner. We come into this world, we are oriented towards worldly, uh, lustful, uh, selfish things. We're not oriented towards God. Our, our human nature is towards depravity. And yet, he also sees that God, through Christ, this is the good news of the Gospel, steps into our lives and rearranges our wills and our desires by bringing us to life so that we could be able to love Him authentically who first loved us. So, Augustine, this is what he taught and this is what he saw through the Apostle Paul. We are powerless to change what we are. We are born into a bad situation and we can't do anything to get ourselves out of it. It's only through the interrupting grace of Christ given freely to us that we are changed into something else. That's what the original Roman understanding of grace was. Amen. This is the Orthodox understanding of grace to this day that the church had embraced for so long. And it even rejected ideas, uh, different ideas. You know, in, in Augustine's day, there was this Welsh theologian and monk Pelagius that came along and taught that original sin. Well, it's not really a thing that it's just our culture and it's a, it's a world around us that corrupts us. We're, we're not so thoroughly broken, us or our world, so we can will ourselves into godliness. The church rejected that as not being biblical. Although the church did keep that at bay for over 1200 years, parts of that thinking kept seeping back into its beliefs. And so we arrive in Luther's day, where that's kind of the de facto state of belief, where grace is gained and activated by our own personal merit. So at this point, now we've seen the history of it, we understand the consequences of it theologically, but the important thing for us to do is go to the Scriptures and see what the Bible tells us about grace. And the Apostle Paul Really helps us understand it here. He helps us understand how we receive grace and what context we receive it and how grace affects our subsequent lives as Christians. So we turn this morning to our scripture passage, Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9. Now just a few minutes ago, we heard, read these two verses from Ephesians and this is the core of our understanding of saving grace. If you want to understand theologically how the apostles construe the work of Jesus for us and how grace is given to us, you can turn right here and get a clear, linear idea of what grace is. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It has nothing to do, in other words, with your merit, your goodness, or anything else. He says it's not from works so that nobody, not Paul, not Peter, not any pastor, not any theologian, not any activist, not any philosopher, nobody can boast. Now this comes to us in a larger section. Ephesians 2, verses 1-10 through gives us the whole sweeping statement on our spiritual condition. So if we back out, if we zoom out a little bit here and we look at that paragraph that Paul writes to us, here's the problem that he shows us. We are doomed. (laughs) That's the problem. We're doomed to die. And here's the solution to that problem. God saves us through His gift, namely grace, His grace through faith. That's the solution. The problem is we're doomed. To put it in King James language, we are damned. The solution is that by grace through faith, we'll be saved. And here's the beauty of it all. None of this has anything to do with our good works has nothing to do with us. Grace exists completely separate from us. Grace will always be grace no matter how good you've been this week. Or, praise the Lord, how bad you've been this week. And so we can't brag about our salvation. We can only praise the Lord for it. But how bad were things really? You know, everybody loves, Americans love to say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a nice person. As an American who loves this country and loves other Americans, there is very few American people that I've met that have been truly nice, good people. (laughs) I mean, we all go to the same stores. We watch the same news. We read the same newspapers. We're around the same people. Ah, there's a lot of, a lot of sweeping under the rug of a lot of bad behavior and lifting up of just normal behavior as if it's something saintly. Give me a break. I see house. Goodness gracious, we, I always say this, but we, on Black Friday, the day after we give thanks for all the good things we have, we trample each other to death for $20 on a TV. That's who we are. But Paul spells out the situation. He doesn't let humanity and any culture, whether you're Chinese, or uh, whether you're from Egypt, or Babylon, or the United States, or Great Britain, or India, or Mexico, or anywhere you're from. He doesn't let any of us get away with thinking that we're somehow okay. Because here are the things that he says is true of every human being that's ever been born. He's going to list them out. He says this, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I mean, that rips the band-aid off at the very beginning. What he means by this is we are unable to commune with God because He is fully alive and we are totally spiritually dead. You can't have a conversation with a living, breathing person and a corpse on the other side of the table. That's a monologue. It's not a conversation. His realm of glory, of true life from which everything in creation stems and in through we live and move and have our being, that realm is totally cut off to us. And we live in this realm of sin and death. Our realities used to overlap. God's realm, creation, overlapped through Him. We sinned and stripped them apart. And we're left in this miserable, failing planet that we have. We're spiritually dead. I mean, that's the worst thing you can be. But, he's going to double down. We're enslaved. He says that we could only live according to the ruler and the rules of this world. Namely, under Satan and his power. That's the God of this world. That's the person by whose rules this planet works. These societies work. We live under violence and abuse and extortion and greed and exploitation and terror. That is the de facto state of human history. You know, they say in all of recorded history, as far as they can tell, when you line up all the accounts, uh, records of human history... For thousands and thousands of years, say we have records going back seven, eight thousand years, whatever, of human history. They think something like maybe 21 years, there's been 21 years of where no wars have been reported. <laughs> Versus thousands. We are constantly in a state of chaos and decay. We are truly enslaved under the power of the devil. That's our day-to-day life under His external evil power with no hope of anything good. Okay, that's bad, right? Well, it's going to get even worse. We're children of disobedience, He says. In other words, we are so controlled by our fleshly desires, we are unable to use our own internal will for anything but the vices and addictions that ensnare us. We're spiritually dead, the devil is ruling over us, and in our hearts we are addicted and enslaved to evil things. We know what kills us. We know what's bad for us. We know what will destroy our families, what will cut short our lives, and still we can't quit those things. Our own will is pulled down towards sin it's not a matter of if you have enlightenment or this is the thing that I was so that was so embedded in me in, in a state education system in higher education. The thing that was so popular in sociology and criminology classes and philosophy classes, if only people had an education, this world would be better. Now education is good. Education has got us the lights that are in this room that the, the cleans our food so we don't die, that produces medicine for us. That's good. Learning is good. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that the, the most moral people are the most educated. I, I have friends in academia. I know what academia is like. Sometimes they're the most devious people I've ever met. Education and knowledge alone will not save us. Because our mind may know something, but that doesn't mean we even have the power to overcome our own will and our desires. You know that every time you drive by that Dunkin Donuts and know that your doctor says that'll kill you, and before you know it you're in it's like you you know you're just all of a sudden you're in line, you don't even remember how you got there. We can't save ourselves, we don't have the willpower to do it. And here's the terrible thing. We were objects of wrath because God is just and good. And we are spiritually dead. We were pawns of the devil. We were even in love with our own desires and vices. God being good has to put an end to that evil and injustice. He could not let sin and evil get away with it forever. And so He will bear His wrath against us for all the horrible things we do to each other and to creation and ourselves and an affront to Him. God has to be just. That is the reality in which we are living. Every single one of us. The nice people and the mean people. The rich people and the poor people. The educated people and the ignorant people. That's where all of us are. In the same boat floating down the river Styx to hell. We're spiritually dead to God. We're externally domineered by Satan. We're internally controlled by our lust. And we are doomed to die. To put that into perspective, a peewee football team would have more of a chance of beating the Patriots in the Super Bowl this year than we have of saving ourselves. But God. Verse 4. And there's the key, church. That's what we were. That's what we are. That's what we could only be. But God, Paul says. Not us, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us because God is so very merciful, because He loves us so much inexplicably to me. Although we were dead in our sins, controlled by Satan in the flesh, and doomed to hell under His justice, although that's everything we could ever amount to, we are now this. That's what we we once were. This is now what we are. Alive in Christ, Paul says. We will be resurrected not only brought back to life, but we will ascend to be enthroned with God. Objects of His grace, His mercy, His love, His compassion, fellowshipping with each other and peace, not only each other, but united to God's own inner Trinitarian life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God doesn't share His throne with angels or principalities or powers or the stars above or the mighty beasts below, he shares his throne with human beings redeemed out of once what they once were. What a reversal of fortunes. What an unbelievable change of trajectory. And you know what caused it all? me being a nice guy, you reading the Bible every day, never missing prayer meeting, giving money to the the Salvation Army only around Christmas time? No. Grace is what achieved this. His grace for you, independent of who you were, good or bad, We are saved by grace. God shows His infinite, undepletable, inexhaustible, never-ending riches towards us, Paul says, by giving us this new life, this new future, by grace alone. Sola gratia. The Bible, does it say that we achieved or accomplished any of this? No. It was impossible. (laughs) The rich man couldn't enter heaven by his Good status. And by being a kingmaker and a friend to all the politicians and highly educated in Jerusalem University and, and, and a keeper of all the laws of Moses, it was impossible for him to enter heaven. And the disciples said, well then, who will be saved? And Jesus said, the most important thing we ever heard, heard, For man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Through grace, even us, even we can be saved. It's a gift, Christian. If you sit here today and you believe this, and you believe in this Jesus, and you have been transformed by His love for you, then you need to know you can never brag about any of it. Oh, we come from a good family. Mama always took us to church on Sunday morning. We never got in trouble with the law or nothing. It's a gift. You aren't even responsible for opening the package. You were a dead person sitting at the table, roaches crawling in and out of your mouth, spiritually speaking. And God gave you life to open that gift. That's what Paul means in verse 10. He says, we are His workmanship. The living, believing Christian is His workmanship. We were the bones in the valley of Ezekiel's day. Dusty, dry, dead. No potential to relink ourselves back together. But the Word of God spoke. Grace was given. And... (gasps) Life and breath and blood and bone linked back together. We were His workmanship created in Christ Jesus by the power of His Spirit. Grace is all about the good news that we do not work on ourselves. We are God's workmanship forged by and on the life of Christ Jesus. It's the grace that sent Jesus to us as a baby in a stall running to Egypt for His life. It's the grace that made Him grow in obscurity but in favor with God and man working unbeknownst to us for 30 years in the sticks of Galilee. It's grace that submerged Him into the baptismal waters of the Jordan on our behalf. He was the obedient Son that we never could be. It was grace that drove Him into the blistering wilderness. What we deserved, He went into that place for us. It was grace that sent Him out into the streets and the bad parts of town to preach good news to the captors. Healing our wounds, casting out our demons, restoring us to our communities and family, and best of all, forgiving our sins. It was grace that sent Jesus into a rigged trial for us. It was grace that caused his scourging and torture. It was grace by which he Willingly submitted to be lynched naked, mocked alone on a cross. And it's by grace He was wrapped in clothes and laid in a virgin tomb because there was no room for Him in Jerusalem. It's this grace that allowed Him to harrow the realm of the dead to go to the place that we were once doomed to and announce His victory over all the evil spirits and raise up all the saints of old that looked forward to His coming. It's grace by which He erupted out of His tomb and ascended to the Father's right hand to rule and reign forevermore, promising to come back and make all things new. And now, it's that very grace that none of us earned that goes out to the highways and the byways, the gutters and the back alleys and invites you to His dinner table today. It's not your merit. It's not your works. It's not your wisdom. It's not your family. It's not your country. It's not your failure. It's not your sins. It is the faith by this, through which we hear this by the Scriptures and your Jesus by God's grace that invites you to this today so that no one can boast. Paul even says that the good works that we are to do now because we've been recipients of grace, well, God prepared those ahead of time through grace for us. Even the good works that you're supposed to go out and do now, God made arranged that ahead of time. And so Christians, I invite you now to this supper table to come near to Jesus who comes near to you. Not in judgment, not in wrath, but in grace and forgiveness. Lay down your merits. Give that up. But lay down your fears as well. Lay down your prides and your anxieties and come to this table which has been purchased for you by grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table now and as we open our hearts and our mouths and testimony to how You've been so very gracious with us, help us to experience the joy, the comfort, the encouragement we need and help us to see and all that this is a free gift of our Lord Jesus for us. For it's in his name and by the Spirit's power and to you alone, O Father, we pray. Amen.